welcome to Building the Smart Estate podcast series. My name is Georgina Marathaftis and I'm the Associate Director for Local Public Services at TEK. Now, in the lead up to TEK's flagship public sector conference, Building the Smart Estate, we are pleased to partner with KPMG to deliver a series of podcasts looking at key enablers of the smart estate. Now, in our first episode in this series, we explored how industry and the public sector can work together to tackle the difficult yet important issue of legacy IT. And in this episode, we will unpack another pressing challenge to digital transformation in the public sector, and that is the digital skills gap. Now, I'm delighted to be joined by two very special guests today who know a lot about this issue. We have Thomas Buterman, who is Deputy Director Government Digital Capability at the CDDO, and Adrian Clamp, who is partner and head of digital transformation at KPMG. Now, before we begin, Thomas, please could you tell tell us a bit more about yourself and also the role at the CDDO? And I'm conscious I've actually abbreviated the CDDO, so if you could tell us a bit more as well about that function. Of course. So, hi everybody. I'm Thomas Peterman. So, I lead um, the capability uh, mission in the cross-government digital and data strategy in government. So I'm part of a team in the cabinet office called the Central Digital and Data Office. So that abbreviated as CDDO. And fundamentally, um, I suppose I wake up in the morning and I'm bothered about a number of things. I'm bothered about, are we able to attract and recruit the number of people that we need with the right skills into the civil service? I'm bothered about uh, us being able to grow and develop those individuals and then ultimately, I'm bothered about hanging on to them and making sure that we've got the right number of people to deliver digital services in as much as it's government. Thank you, Thomas. Now, um, Adrian, I'll turn to you now. Obviously, you are a friend of the podcast. But if you could please remind us about your role and also KPMG's in shaping digital transformation and also, I guess, specifically within digital skills. Yes, thank you. Um, and great to be here today. Uh, I, I lead an area of services um, that we call the connected uh, enterprise, but is effectively digital transformation of a an enterprise or a business or a government department around the needs of its citizens and uh, colleagues uh, end to end. Um, we 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 do those services, deliver those services across uh, public and private sector here in the UK and globally, actually. So I have a global role. Uh, that involves coordination with our other country member firms as we're building out more and more of those approaches. And, and spoiler alert, digital skills, as Thomas was talking about, is right in the centre of that. So many of our clients are, are keen to enhance digital skills and grow them and looking forward to the discussion today. Thank you both. And also, we were delighted to have both of you actually on our digital skills um, workshop, which we were also running in partnership with KPMG and the wider public sector in the run up to the conference um, in September. Now, at that workshop, Thomas, you were very optimistic. So I'm hoping we have that same optimism in today's recording of the podcast um, as well. Now, before we kick off it will be really good to understand you know what that digital skills um gap and challenge looks like so if i can come to you first thomas just to kind of give us the 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 context there what does that look like um so the world that i know best is essential government um and in our world, we think about, I suppose, the gaps and the challenges, but also where the strength is in terms of two distinct groups. So the first group is all of those digital makers um, 
our software engineers, our delivery managers, our architects, um, who all to, all help to build digital services that genuinely make a difference to our citizens. The other group um, is everybody else in the civil service, all of those other 450,000 civil servants who we need to have a level of skill and confidence in order to fully exploit the potential that digital data has. In, in terms of those digital makers, um, we have currently in government about 20,000 um, uh, digital makers, digital professionals, um, but we have a gap. And the gap is at the moment, circa, we have something like three to 4,000 vacancies, which, which means that we either have a shortfall in our ability to deliver services, or in most cases, we look to plug that gap with support from uh, other organizations outside of the civil service. Um, so that gives you a sense of the kind of the gap that we're facing. In terms of the rest of the civil service, we're putting a lot of energy into upskilling all levels, but prioritizing in the first instance, our most senior leaders in government, making sure that our coups, our CFOs, our HR directors are all uh, equipped and ready and able to understand their role in leading digital transformation and helping make sure that we get the very best of, of the, the potential that digital and data technology gives us. Thanks, Thomas. And I think that's a really important point as well in terms of what you kind of alluding to the importance of having that digital leadership um, as well. I guess that leadership, you know, by being digital by default, by saying actually this is really something is important and that we need across um, central government in particular. Now, given that, Adrian, if I can come to you, um, you know, what do you think is the right mix of digital skills needed to, you know, really push and I guess elevate digital transformation within public services? Uh, well, within public services, I definitely would bow to Thomas's uh, knowledge in his role, but definitely from the outside, you know, as a service provider, we really welcome that move, you know, thinking in the broader sense about digital beyond the professionals or the makers, where we've all been very you know, focused on having enough cloud engineers and enough uh, data analytics folks, et cetera, into that broader thinking that now, you know, CDDO are leading on, um, you know, the, the leadership um, of, uh, of of these departments, just as we see the leadership of uh, you know, private sector businesses, they need to embrace these new skills. Um, digital is not, uh, if you like, you know, a technical skill. It, we're in a digital world. You know, citizens want to very often engage with government services in a digital way, and leaders now need to lead their organisations, whether it's public or private, in a digital world. And that involves some hard skills, things to learn that might be new to them. You know, they maybe didn't grow up in a in a technical domain many of our leaders have grown up you know in another domain so they need to know a bit about the cloud know a bit about you know data analytics but also how to lead in a digital world involves some softer skills as well you know becoming a servant leader some of the time and, and empowering more teams so definitely uh, recognize that and applaud that and of course there's a, 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 you know another part of that group that everyone group are, are those that particularly engage a lot with technologists with the makers in redesigning services whether you know they're on a big program or a smaller program or in a function they they need a way of of understanding their role you know in a digital engagement uh, where they might be representing what the customer wants or the citizen wants so uh, 
yeah, it's it, there's a lot to do, but it, it, it does seem to, to us that there's this great direction now uh, from the centre of government. And I think that's a really important point, Adrian, in terms of um, also outlining what we need, not just from the kind of the public, but private sector, because ultimately we're all part of one ecosystem. You know, suppliers are, you know, value added partners to central government, the wider public sector. So it's really important that we are moving in that that direction there. So I guess going back to the challenge, but also the, the opportunity, you know, one is attracting and retaining and the other is, you know, upskilling the existing workforce. So if we focus on the latter for now, you know, how do we upskill the workforce to sustain and deliver digital services, you know, that ultimately meet the needs of citizens? in that smarter state and I think you both touched on in terms of you know how do we get this as a priority for public sector leaders and it's great to hear the work um of CDDO and Thomas what you've mentioned what you're doing now so um if I can go to you first um Thomas in terms of you know how do we build on that that good work and um, so the way we approach it is I think first starting with understanding what are the attributes of of those services that we want to be able to deliver for citizens Obviously, then these services, they need to be safe, they need to be secure, secure, they need to be scalable. But critically, they also need to meet user need. Unlike many organisations, um, our, our citizens, they can't choose where they go for government services. They can't choose a different organisation. Um, and, and we're the only some of their services, such as, such as benefits. Um, so we need to be really clear what are the services and then how does that correlate back to the skills that we need um, and to follow that thread through um, one of the roles that's grown the most in the last two to three years is that of a user researcher we recognize better than ever before the needs to really understand the needs of our users to be able to hear and understand and act on those seldom heard voices of people that are in some of our most marginalized communities across the uk so being really clear about what are the services, what are the standards of those services, and then how does that correlate back onto our skills means that we can start to codify and count and, and quantify ultimately the size of the gap in very specific ways by grade, by role type, by skill. Um, and then that gives us the basis of our, our, I suppose, our understanding of what is the gap that we're looking to, to fill. So for us, our focus is on, on probably two or three key areas. The first one is on making sure that we have a really compelling employee value proposition. So we are able to attract in new talent, but then also hang on to our existing talent. And that means all those different things that we want from a, a job, all of us, we want, we want purpose. We want to work in a fantastic team environment. We want autonomy to do what we want. And we also want to be paid, right? We want to be paid what we feel is, is fair and right for the roles that we do. And then the second key strategy we've got is growing from within um, and making sure that all of our existing staff have the opportunity to develop to their full potential and that their managers right behind them and the environment is set up. Um, and then you, you, I think you also asked the, the question about, about leaders, about um, how we get that change in attitude, that change in belief from leaders. Um, and in our case, it means, well, frankly, starting from the top, making sure that all of our permanent secretaries, who are essentially the CEOs of their own businesses, their own departments, understand the importance of this and are able to role model it and cascade the criticality of it to their teams. Um, and that's exactly what we've done in CDDO. So all of those 
permanent secretaries come together every quarter to talk specifically about our digital data strategy. There are then multiple groups where we cascade the importance down and then step by step we are upskilling and supporting all of those leaders to understand more about digital data to provide a safe environment for them to be able to ask lots of different questions so they feel themselves able to take advantage of digital data fantastic to hear um exists adrian is there anything you wanted to um add in you know in particular i guess as well you know what role can digital and the you know tech industry play in terms of transforming that mindset and helping public sector leaders yes well perhaps it'd be more tactical because you know thomas laid out there that sort of compelling strategy but you know tactically on the ground very often we find that the the different training and learning interventions can be made they work particularly well um so with with leaders you know at that permanent secretary level those senior leaders Yes, they'll need to go on some courses, but often there's coaching, you know, there's there's guidance and role playing, you know, scenarios that, that there's a new way of working, as Thomas said, actually, and, and going on a training course, you know, once for, you know, every few months, uh, you know, has its place, but, but sometimes there's more that's required. And then for everyone, uh, you know, at different levels, sometimes it's training just in time sometimes it's learning in the flow of work as it's called you know in in, in role specific tailored you know pathways that, that can be taught to people uh, and now training can be delivered in bite-sized chunks you know people often are working in a hybrid way you know they won't want to necessarily come into a physical training classroom there might be some digital learning but people get digital fatigue if it's too long so it's actually the design of the and um, the uh, ped pedagogy, which is actually, I think, the phrase for learning design, is is a real discipline. So getting that right uh, and making those pathways tailored and making them smart as well. If someone's been on the course, do a quick assessment. Don't need to go on the course again. So the ways of making it efficient. And you asked about the the private sector and, and service providers. I think it's incumbent upon us as an industry to play our role in supporting this government agenda. You know, for probably for too long, you know, most of the um, uh, drive for this uh, level of change might have come from some private sector organizations, but, but our role is to support um, our clients and customers here on, on their transformation. So more and more we're finding uh, and I'm sure the industry are, when we when we had our workshop, we talked about it as an industry group. We're being asked to, in our proposals, discuss, you know, how are we going to deliver skills transfer? How are we going to engage with colleagues and make sure that, that whatever we're delivering is sustainable? Um, how can we empower and engage, you know, the folks we're working with? So I think that uh, service providers, we just have to recognise that we're, we're part of the ecosystem, we're part to play, but really this is so important for the state to have these skills uh, inside, at their, um, you know, in the core of their departments. Yeah, absolutely. We cannot sustain a smarter state, can we, without the necessary skills um, and people at the heart of that. And my next question was going to be, you know, how do we attract and retain digital skills within the public sector? But would the answer be the same, I guess, as the above in terms of upskilling, you know, wanting to work somewhere with 
purpose hopefully that is what you know would keep someone and feel valued why they would want to stay within an organization because they can see that upper you know opportunity for progress but also challenge so thomas i don't know um if you uh, approach it you know upskilling attracting retaining into different ways or if it's kind of part of the same puzzle i, I think it's absolutely part of the same puzzle um I personally believe there is a, there's a compelling reason why people will join the, the public sector um, and it comes down to that that balanced EVP and there are few places if any that um, talent can go to to work on the scale and the the the, the challenge of the different projects that we work on um, that are ultimately you know uh, I suppose that the, the lifeblood of, of many of the sort of the really important systems that we all rely on as citizens of the UK, and um, that purpose is a really important part of our EVP. Also, equally important is the opportunity to have you know really fulfilling, exciting careers where you get to both work on different projects, but then also um, learn and develop and grow as an individual. All of those things are really important, and when it might be that though in some cases there are there are some genuine challenges in us um uh paying at very high uh levels of pay against compared to some of sort of the the private sector market leaders our objective is ultimately to have a balanced employee value proposition which is still really compelling to both people who might consider a career with us in the first instance and look to be seeking to get their first job through to those people who we want to stay with us and want to carry on delivering um, for citizens in the UK. Fantastic. Um, now, Adrian, I wanted to come to you in terms of as the industry voice, um, moving slightly to a different topic, but within skills, looking at legacy um, IT. That was one of our, our first workshops and again, even within legacy, when we were discussing how do we reframe legacy IT, I'm sure it came to no surprise to no one that, you know, skills came up in terms of, you know, the existing skill set, but how do we, you know, attract, you know, new people and talent to want to work within the public sector where maybe they don't, you know, maybe want to work on legacy um, IT. How do we overcome that knowledge gap when it comes to legacy tech and skills, Adrian? Yeah, I think that's a real challenge at the moment, to, to be honest with you. It's not something that, and certainly not restricted to public sector. I think so many of our, you know, UK banks and building societies and uh, insurance companies, et cetera, you know, run on, 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 uh, legacy systems, systems that have been around for a while, that might have been built on languages that are no longer as fashionable as they were when they started uh, out. And many of the engineers who built those systems are now retiring or have retired. And so there is a question, isn't there, of resilience of these systems? Uh, and how do you encourage the next generation of developers to learn about them? Um, in a way, it echoes what Thomas has been saying, you know, identify that, uh, that, you know, what's important, um, make people feel that it's part of their employee value proposition to be trained on those technologies. Um, and uh, and there's an enjoyable, you know, uh, career ahead of them. Many of these uh, legacy technologies underpin the services that we operate day to day, you know, the core banking systems that pay, pay your wages, that uh, uh, travel systems that, you know, when you get on an airline or, or the health systems as well. So if you're attracted to working on large, uh 
uh, technologies that have purpose behind them that actually do affect people's lives on a day-to-day -day basis, then there's an employee proposition there. I just think we need to take care of those learning pathways. People do not, although there's a often a pay, pay gap and pay differentials between di different um, sectors within our economy, not just public and private, even within the obviously the private sector, some sectors pay more than others. It tends not to be in our research the real reason, the main reason, the number one reason people choose an employer, it's purpose and opportunity to grow, opportunity to advance and learn different things and, and, and experience variety. So all of that talks to, I think, how training and learning can be central, even more central, you know, to the employee proposition. Um, there is something tactical to just cover, which I think is, in, is probably machine learning, which is this incredible age we're in now where AI and machine learning is 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 is, is growing at this exponential rate. I, I do think there are some technologies that allow us now to build uh, code, to write code uh, that is low code, and maybe it, 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 even some of the older languages can be can be you know, configured by folks that don't don't know those languages in detail. You probably have someone testing it who does know, but there's a way of democratizing knowledge. Uh, and it, it's just such a fast moving world technology that we don't perhaps need as many uh, people that know COBOL as we used to. Perhaps they could use some of the low code tools that still produce good quality COBOL. So there are different different levers to pull, but it's not, uh, it, it's not a simple challenge. It's definitely a generational challenge. How do we make sure we have enough people that can service the, the older technologies, the ones that uh, run the services day to day? Exactly that. And I love that phrase of democratizing knowledge. And I'm just going to build on what you said. Um, it, you know, in the news, you know, constantly when we're talking and thinking about emerging technology, you know, AI comes to mind. And, you know, most recently, you know, the use of generative um, AI. I wanted to ask kind of what impact do you think that has on the digital skills landscape in the UK? And Adrian, if I can come to you first, because it was really interesting what your answer was for legacy IT in terms of that approach. And as you are thinking, oh, would that be the same in terms of how we approach emerging technologies um, as well? Yes, I think so. I think sometimes these emerging technologies, um, these potentially exponential technologies are quite hard to predict in their early stages what they're going to do. And sometimes it's it's hard to predict whether something is, you know, going to be as impactful as you think it is at the start. You know, the World Wide Web was obviously world changing um, and at the start felt uh, different. Um, but plenty of things have felt different at the start that didn't perhaps, you know, t t take off uh, to the extent that they were predicted. I think generative AI, certainly the consensus with with men, in, among many in, in, in probably the consulting world and maybe in the technology world as well as this actually does have the potential for being as or if not more impactful than the world wide web um in the short term it's going to mean opportunity is what i would actually say i know there's a lot of narrative oh well this is going to destroy jobs this is going to um you don't need to learn how to code and we don't need any business experts i i just think exploiting um this AI, using it to augment what you do day to day, whether you're in a call center or running a finance function or even in, a, in technology, you know, cutting code. There's so much that is possible now in technology to augment what we do rather than replace it. So I'm optimistic for the future. I think it's actually 
deflationary, if I, if I put that economic lens on it. I think there's an opportunity to do way more with fewer resources or with the same resources, do way more so we can be more productive. We certainly need productivity as a country. So I tend to take the optimistic view that we should embrace these new technologies. I think the UK should become a leader in the application of them. And many of them come from very large US-based tech firms. But let's be the earliest adopter in whether it's public and private. At the end of the day, it's technology, but to an end, to, to, to serve a, a purpose, uh, whether it's you know a care pathways in the NHS or benefits in, in DWP, or if it's a, a bank becoming even more, you know, sort of ambient experience. I, I think that we should lead um, and, and train up as many people as we can in these, in these emerging fields that are exciting. Yeah, fantastic ambition there. Um, Thomas, do you agree with that optimism? I do, yes. Um, so I'm equally optimistic. And, and of course, um, some of the very newer aspects of especially generative AI need to be understood and we need to help colleagues understand both the risks and the opportunities with them. Um, but ultimately, yeah, I share Adrian's view and believe it to be a force for good. Um, and I'm excited because we're learning every day, right? So every day we go into ChatGPT4 or BARD or Bing AI or anything like that, um, you really you start to understand the opportunities it creates as well as maybe some of the limitations. Um, I believe it's going to drive productivity. It's going to create new opportunities for all of us, um, which isn't necessarily going to reduce demand for skills. It's going to open up new opportunities to realize greater output and ultimately greater use of what is human potential and human capital. I think then the most important thing that, that um, for somebody like me in my role is I believe ultimately it will change the value we attribute to different skills. So, we, there is a tendency we have at the moment on thinking that actually the the most critical skills that we need in, in government digital, for example, um, and will be things like um, being able to, to code, being able to, to test that code and so on. Whereas actually, I think we'll start to understand and attribute greater value in future to maybe some of those more human skills rather than some of the very hard technical skills. How good is somebody? How well is somebody able to um, uh, to problem solve, to think critically, to work in a team, um, to self manage their their own time, and so on? So I think it will force us, especially as we start to recruit in this new world, or the, to to think differently and maybe a bit more explicitly about those very specific skills that we need. Fantastic, and I guess. Building on that optimism and hopefully, you know, good practice. Are there any good practice in terms of digital skills development that we can learn from both, I guess, at home or abroad? So, um, yeah, Thomas, obviously, we've got the, the, the forums and the groups that CDO um, are running, which is fantastic. But, yeah, please do share or signpost if you think there are, you know, any others that we can learn from. Oh, my goodness. Um, so many, so many. That's um, a great answer. Well. <laughs> um, so some of the new things that I find particularly exciting are, um, and this is very much where we we can take our cues, take our intelligence and our insight, in some cases from colleagues in other organisations beyond government, but things like being able to assess uh, more robustly for potential in candidates. Um, so rather than maybe re relying on traditional sort of behavioural 
assessment when we're looking to recruit people, finding new and different ways to actually really get to the heart of what's someone's potential. So even if they're not able to give an example of, for example, uh, uh, I can tell you about a time when I did X, Y, and Z, we'll start to, to use agents, we'll democratize it, I suppose, open out new opportunities by really understanding what is an individual's potential for a particular role, even if they've not had exposure to, to some of the, the more specifics in that role. Um, and we and there's definitely some great practice we're seeing from other organizations that we're looking to adopt into government. And then similarly, um, to come back to the learning theme, um, there is some really strong examples in the market at the moment of uh, quite innovative learning platforms that allow uh, an individual's learning to be tailored to their needs, to be built around what they need to do. So again, use agents phrase, sort of build, be built into their, their workflow. Um, they're all examples of really good practice that I think government can do more with and exploit better. And, and Adrian, obviously you work with a number of partners across public and, and private sectors. I'm sure you've got lots as well to add to this. Yes, I think those, those um, I'm particularly taken by that, that use of AI, the beginning use of predictive AI uh, in, in, learn, in those learning platforms. So I'm just talking about, you know, personalise the pathways through. Um, and I think where we're going, and I don't think it's too out there to say it, but they will over time have personalised learning um, assistance. And just think about the number of folks in the UK are excluded, you know, from the digital economy, whether it's, you know, demographically or, or vulnerability or just the fact that they did the wrong A-levels or GCSEs or, 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 or didn't do didn't do A-levels. Um, but they're in the workforce. And now, it's not my phrase, but I love it too, this democratization uh, of knowledge that now natural language, the natural language interface allows and personalize. Some people learn things at different paces and some people are more experiential learners, some people are verbal learners, people learn in lots of different ways. Um, I've been quite inspired by the Khan Academy. I know that's not a British thing, but if you know what I mean, is a, is a, is a, uh, an Indian chap who left a, a great university, but he was coaching his cousins in maths and science, and they were doing the equivalent of GCSEs in the US uh, on the side. And he created these little training courses on YouTube, and now that's become a huge learning service, uh, and thousands of people learn. And even schools have been set up to apply the Khan Academy. What's, what's, what really caught my eye is the learning outcomes from that type of individualized learning where the teacher is still in the classroom, but they become the coach and just check check in on everyone where, where the learning is more immediate and digital and people learn at their own pace. Even though it might take you a little longer than some other colleagues in the first few modules, when you've got it, you've got it, and then you can progress. The overall outcomes are way, way better than other forms of learning. So I, I think we are in a scary way. I hope it's not too scary, moving towards more personalized learning coaches and pathways rather than all having to sit in classrooms along with everyone else. No, I think that's really important as well, to your point as well, around digital inclusion and accessibility, which I'm sure um, we could, you know, have a whole other discussion of, but, you know, really important and integral to that. So thank you, Beth. We've had a rich, interesting discussion now. Before we close, just wanted to ask if you had any additional things that you wanted to add to today's discussion. Thank you, Tech UK, for making this happen. You know, we... we... Uh, speaking on behalf of you know the, the attendees in the room that day, 
it's inspiring to hear the government's agenda here and I know that we all want to play our part to support that mission not just for the way that public services are being redesigned and imagined and uh, our own part in that but frankly for the UK you know as we as we're on this digital journey ourselves so thanks for making it happen Fantastic. No, thank you, Thomas and Adrian, for your excellent insights. It's been great having you on Tech UK's Building a Smarter State podcast series. And I hope people listening um, also leave with that optimism. I think there's still lots for us to do, but I think what's clear is there is progress. And I think together we can help solve the digital skills gap. So thank you both. This has been the Building the Smarter State podcast series by Tech UK in collaboration with KPMG. Thank you for listening. Thank you.